This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. So tell us about the hashtag Democracy RIP. Democracy RIP was a hashtag that they had all set up ready to go to question the legitimacy of the Clinton election. And so what to me this signifies is that the 2016 election was never really about electing Trump. It was about a much larger project that the Russians had in mind with the intention of democracy RIP, of of making our democracy as illegitimate as possible. There's a high degree of willingness to address the problem of Russian interference. But every time there's been an effort to try to create the coordination and the centralization that's truly required to address the problem, it's been undermined by the president. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Franklin Four is a staff writer at The Atlantic Magazine. During his career, he has written for Slate and New York Magazine, and he served as the editor of The New Republic. Frank just wrote an article for The Atlantic titled, Putin is well on his way to stealing the next election. I just sat down and talked to Frank about this article in the latest in our series of episodes on the foreign threat to the 2020 election. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Frank, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show. It's great to have you as a part of our series on foreign interference in the 2020 election. I should say I, I'm I'm always interested in what led my guests to their respective careers. So let me just take a minute or two to start by asking you, how did you end up as a journalist? So I started as a journalist uh, right out of my senior year in college. I went to work 
at Slate in the summer that Slate was getting started up. So it was the it was hailed as the first uh, real internet magazine. And so I drove out to Seattle because uh, Microsoft Microsoft then owned Slate, and um, and Microsoft was in the process of assembling what was going to be. Um, a massive media empire that uh, never quite took hold. But uh, I was kind of at Microsoft at the moment when it was when it was the evil empire, when it was the kind of force that was dominating the world. And um, ever since then, I've uh, I've been convinced that I would never quite make it as a journalist. So I'm always um, <laughs> I, even even now, uh, decades later, I'm kind of pleasantly surprised by <laughs> um, every time an article of mine ends up uh, in print. And it's really um, I just got to say it's 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 a great great career because you're always able to um, follow your curiosity, and so. Uh, I, I just feel I feel very very blessed to have a career that's as interesting as journalism permits. Yeah, I would imagine, like so many of my former colleagues at CIA, that being a journalist is something that for you has meaning that goes well beyond just a paycheck. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, for me, it's it's almost it, it's not it's not just the sense of mission, which is really wonderful i love i love taking on subjects where i feel a sense of just justice or outrage or or passion about the subject i mean it really is it's a lifestyle i mean it really because you're you're constantly you're able to ask people questions all the time which is kind of a wonderful way of engaging our our, our fellow human beings um to to come to them in that spirit of curiosity um and it's also for me, it's just kind of the, the form of intellectual engagement that the that the profession permits means that um, not only do I feel like I get to get to live my values, but it's like I, I just can't really think of anything um, that would be more satisfying to my to my brain than the career that I have. That's cool. So, Frank, your your piece in the Atlantic recently on. Russia and the 2020 election. Why did you, why'd you write that? Well, I've, this is, um, this is a saga that I feel like I've been involved with since close to the, the beginning of the, well, since it began. So I, in the 2016 campaign, um, I wrote a long profile about Paul Manafort that kind of, because of Paul Manafort's work in Ukraine and his tangled business interests led me to start thinking about all the reasons why Donald Trump was praising Vladimir Putin and also led me to kind of pay attention to all the very explicit things that uh, the Russians were saying about American politics. And there was so much that was just sitting out there in the open during the 2016 campaign about, about, well, the, the hacks on the DNC and, and, um, and the relationship to, to WikiLeaks and I wrote a piece in uh, July of 2016 called Putin's Puppet about Donald Trump and about Russian plans for interfering in that election. And so this is this is a subject that I've always cared about. And it just struck me as we were moving into this election season that there's so much that's going on in, in the world that and we, we have this kind of politics of distraction where it's very hard for us to, to focus on any given problem. And I just, 
I felt like I'd started working on this narrative four years ago. We knew based on some of the intelligence communities were reporting to the Hill that the Russians were interfering in our intended to interfere in our elections again. And I felt like it was almost my duty to the narrative to, um, to look into what was happening and to, to examine really how our system responded to the events of 2016. And, and much of my story is not really about what's going on in Moscow. It's about what's going on, what's happened here in Washington and in the States and how we've prepared or failed to prepare ourselves for what seems inevitable. So, so long form is one of my favorite ways to, to stay informed. And I'm just wondering the piece you wrote, the kind of piece you wrote, how long does it take to do that? You know, what's the process? Um, are you working on more than one piece at a time? How long does the editing take? You know, how does all this work for somebody who is not used to kind of the business? Right. So I began this piece in January, and it appeared um, on the Atlantic's website, I think, on May 11th. And so um, starting in in the middle of January, I started to set up meetings uh, with experts in the field and um, just wanted to, to talk to the generalists first and just try to really get my mind wrapped around kind of what the what the problem is to figure out how I was going to report the story. And it's kind of a form of ubiquitous capture where I just, I order as many books as I can. I, um, I, I, I look for as many other long form pieces of journalism as I can. I start to compile congressional testimony. I start looking at, at, at court documents because in this instance, I knew that there were some really great primary sources, that there was the Mueller report, which I'd read at the time, but I wanted to kind of reread extremely carefully. There were all the indictments that uh, that Robert Mueller brought, which were incredible primary documents, which the press kind of picks apart only a very little bit. Like as, as, a, as um, somebody working on a long form story, my assumption is that if I go back to the original documents and the original sources, there's always a next level of detail that I can find in those documents. There was a, a series, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence published a series of great reports, which were uh, very important for me as I was going about doing this. So I tried to figure out the problem. And then as I started to figure out the problem, I started to break it down into its component parts. So I knew that there was, um, that the Russians were interested in our electoral systems. I knew that they were interested in uh, using social media for disinformation. I knew that they were going to hack documents. And so then I started to kind of so as I got a feel for what the broad outlines of the story are, I started to kind of burrow down and, and figure out who the best experts were in those areas in particular, who could help serve as my guides. And so then I booked a whole other set of interviews uh, based, based on that. And as I go through this process, I'm starting to think to myself, all right, as I understand the problem, how can I best convert that understanding to storytelling. So I'm starting to look for narratives and characters that I can use. So Frank, your piece starts with the story of a young man named Jack Cable. Can you tell us his story? Right. So um, a guy who worked on the Hill said, you need to talk to this kid at Stanford because he's a real expert in voter registration databases. And I thought to myself, am I going to really call 
college kid to, uh, to, to, to like, I guess I've got these long list of experts I need to talk to and I've got senators I need to talk to. Am I going to talk to this college kid? And just kind of for the heck of it, I sent him an email and we set up time to talk and I asked him, like, how did you get interested in this, uh, in voter registration databases? You're, you're a sophomore at Stanford. And he started to tell me this incredible story about how when he registered to vote, vote registered to get an absentee ballot, at Stanford, he filled out a form on the Chicago Board of Elections website, and um, it returned an error message to him. And it turned out that he'd entered in an extra uh, uh, quotation mark in his address field. And Jack Cable happened to be uh, a white hat hacker, so an ethical hacker who was working with companies and and governments to try to find vulnerabilities in their websites. And he just got interested in trying to figure out like what vulnerabilities remained after the 2016 election, because we now know that the Russians probed the, um, uh, the websites, the electoral systems of, of, of 50 different states. And um, he had the expertise to go and do this. And, he'd, and so he, he did. And he found that in some instances, uh, the exact same vulnerabilities remain that the Russians exploited in 2016. And so we set about trying to um, uh, get people to pay attention to these vulnerabilities, and he found it exceedingly hard. And Jack Cable is now, um, many, many, many months later, um, is now interning with the Department of Homeland Security as part of a team from of Stanford kids who've kind of volunteered to help them at the last minute, um, try to see if there are any vulnerabilities in the system that can be patched before the Russians try to exploit them. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that after, you know, after several years of trying to fix problems, that he stumbles on, you know, a vulnerability, and then they end up hiring him, right, to to find more here just five months before the election. It's a, it's a little scary. So tell us about the hashtag democracy RIP and how that is, at least I think, a, a really powerful symbol for the theme of your piece. Right. So we know um, at uh, the, the Russians, like the rest of the world, thought that Hillary Clinton was going to prevail in the 2016 election. And in the event of her winning, they had a whole campaign locked and ready to go to try to dispute the credibility of her election. And so they, they had assigned, um, they tried to get diplomats from the, uh, the Russian embassy in Washington to go work as a, a, a poll observers across the country. They wanted to embed their people in, in voting locations so that they could then go out later and talk about all the fraudulent things that they'd, they'd said. But to, democracy RIP was a hashtag that they had all set up, ready to go to question the legitimacy of the Clinton election. And so what to me this signifies is that the 2016 election was never really about electing Trump. It was about a much larger project that the Russians had in mind with the intention of democracy RIP, of of making our democracy as illegitimate as possible. That... um, one, one expert uh, put it to me, the, the Russians export their own domestic model to the rest of the world. And what Putin has done with the Russian polity is that he's, he's created 
such a degree of cynicism that it's ultimately led to mass apathy and the degradation of Russian civil society. And if you want to discredit America to it in the American model to its core, the thing you do is you would create the same sort of cynicism that would lead to the same sort of apathy that you have in Russia. So Frank, now we can sort of move to how we have over the last three and a half years prepared ourselves or not prepared ourselves for this onslaught by Putin. You write that our vulnerabilities have actually widened, not narrowed over the last three and a half years. That's a pretty powerful statement. Can you kind of walk us through your thinking on that? Well, so some of this is incredibly evident, which is that um, as a society, we've become much more fractured uh, than we were we were four years ago. We're much more gullible when it comes to fake news and uh, disinformation. That if you um, if you want to plant something into our informational ecosystem in order to trigger a desired result, you know it's just it's just easier to do now because our faith and authority has whittled away even even further than that. Part of the problem is um, the guy who presides over our entire system, which is if you looked at the bureaucracy um, and you, you you would see that in the Department of Homeland Security, in in the intelligence agencies, there's a high degree of, um, of I'd say, uh, enthusiasm, of willingness, uh, to uh, of a deep desire to kind of address the the problem of Russian interference and there are lots of great plans that uh, that have been hashed a- across the government to deal with the problem and there's some bureaucrats who've made made real progress in doing it but every time there's been an effort to try to create the coordination and the centralization that's truly required to address the problem um, it's been undermined by the president and. Um, the president, of course, fired the acting director of national intelligence, Joe McGuire, and his deputy after he raised the subject of Russian interference in a congressional uh, briefing, and it just had a chilling effect. One of one of the most chilling things that I heard in the course of of my reporting is that the various analysts who had been detailed to the uh, the ODNI. Uh, to work on Russia and Russian interference, we're all asking to get transferred, or a lot of them were asking to get transferred out because they didn't believe that their um, that their they, they believe that there would be such political pressure coming to bear on their their assessments that they didn't think that they would be able to produce credible work that they could stand behind and. Uh, when I asked Senator Mark Warner, uh, who is the the ranking Democrat on the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, if he could, if 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 he felt confident that he would know about Russian interference if it was happening, he said he didn't. He couldn't. He couldn't be sure that um, factual, comprehensive accounts of Russian interference would work their way through the system uh, to the point that they'd arrive at his desk. So the public. Um, policymakers might not even know the full extent of Russian interference in this next campaign. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Frank Ford. What makes a life a good one? 
Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. So, Frank, you also write that the Russians, the Russians are innovating and finding new ways to poison our politics. Talk about that a little bit. I mean, so you could look at uh, each of these specific areas that I'm, I'm talking about, and you can see how their tactics have evolved over time. We're so focused on the 2016 election um, that uh, we kind of looked at that as a self-contained narrative, whereas uh, what happens in American elections are part of a broader strategy that involves elections all over the world. And if we look at what's happened in European elections, and we'd see that the Russians had have intervened in or tried to interfere in most every significant European election since 2016. And um, you take something like the hacking of um, campaign documents, and you can see how uh, how their sophistication has has grown over time. Um, we could we we see how um, I mean I'll give you a couple examples. One is that they've uh, they've public has come to trust hacked uh, hacked and leaked emails as kind of the most authentic. Uh, expression of what happens in a campaign. And so the Russians, at least in France, started to exploit that trust in hacked documents to introduce falsified documents into the broader mix of authentically hacked documents. So they're exploiting our trust in that. And that's something that could happen in the last minute of a campaign, um, which is when these things tend to happen and cause a great deal of chaos. I mean, we've seen um, uh, they, they've since since 2016 they've put on kind of they've they've shown their determination to hack. So uh, there are uh, in Holland uh, there was an instance where um, this is not a campaign, but th- to hack uh, uh, an anti-proliferation organization, um, they they sent their agents to sit in the parking lot outside uh, outside the agency in the Hague uh, and used all sorts of equipment to kind of uh, to intercept. Wi-Fi signals. I mean, the Russians, compared to some of the other adversaries that we face, are not you know they're 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 talented and uh, they're invented inventive, but they also just happen to be the most determined of the bunch. Mm. Yeah. So this is not something that they did in 2016, right? Put out fake documents. So, so it, if they did that, that would be something new. That that would be that would be an in- innovation. Um, and I talked to um, I talked to various people at cybersecurity firms, uh, one of whom is the guy who runs cybersecurity for Microsoft. And he told me one of the things that he was really he was concerned about is um, synthetic audio has evolved so that uh, it's possible to really persuasively and effectively um, mimic someone's voice. And right. so I could leave a voicemail for you, uh, like as if I was your boss, leaving you instructions to send an email or to uh, drop something in, in, into, a, into a folder on the cloud that would then give me access to all of your documents. And so I thought that that was, um, that was clever. One of the things that 
we see is that uh, the various branches of Russian organized crime execute schemes and they become this laboratory uh, through which the, the Russian military intelligence kind of borrows techniques over time. So in, in in your piece, you you have three sections. One is called Hack the Vote, one is called The Big Fish, and one is called Disinformation 2.0. Walk us through what you tried to do in each of those sections. So in Hack the Vote, uh, I, I mentioned earlier that the Russians had um, had kind of had probed the the uh, the voting systems of all fifty states, and it was a real question. I think uh, that the intelligence community faced in um, coming out of twenty sixteen, which is what did the Russians want from that exploratory mission? It seemed as if they could have done much more damage; they could have caused much more chaos than they actually did in twenty sixteen. But they kind of stayed their hand, and it seems like they acquired. Um, this this topography of the um, the digital infrastructure of American campaigns, and so the question is, what can they do to act on that now? And we we know that from various Ukrainian examples that they're cap- quite capable of of doing relatively. They get, they could cause big chaos and knock out systems, or they could do small things that would have big impact. So if they wanted to cast an election's legitimacy into doubt, they could, um, they could alter a voter registration database so that uh, yeah, you know, one number in people's addresses were flipped, which caused confusion, which would then produce long lines at a, at a, at a voting sa- station and people might turn away from the polls if they saw long lines, or at the very least, it would create this, they did it at a couple stations, it would create this air of suspicion. And the air of suspicion is maybe just enough to cause severe damage to us. One one scenario that, uh, that I speculated about would be uh, kind of based on what the Russians did in Ukraine is, what if on election night in Wisconsin, um, they managed to uh, post fake results on the Wisconsin Board of Elections website. You could imagine how the president or his allies or anybody could seize on that fake information in order to say that something funny had happened and that this whole election um, should be considered illegitimate and discredited. Um, I I looked at uh, the the Russian tactic of, of hacking campaign databases and the possibility of 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 leaking them, and I went back and I revisited the Podesta leaks from the 2016 campaign. John Podesta was Hillary Clinton's campaign chair, and uh, his email was hacked. And I wanted to try to show the precise toll that that takes. I mean, we're well aware how the information that comes from hacked emails can um, can can distort the politics of a campaign. I think that. The uh, the Democratic National Committee's hacked emails did a lot to were, were were unfurled in the middle of the Democratic National Convention, and they did a lot to sow suspicion among uh, Bernie Sanders supporters, some of whom never came into the fold uh, and never voted in November. But it also it's you know I, I was really interested in some of the mundane. Um, implications of hack uh, hacking for a campaign. So Podesta told me that 
like in the middle of the last month of this campaign, he was busy dealing with identity thefts who were who were uh, taking his his information from these hacks and um, setting up credit cards in their names and trying to get his social security benefits and kind of most comically of all um, spending down uh, uh, loyalty points that he'd acquired on the bus that he took back and forth from uh, Washington to campaign headquarters in New York. And, you know, it took, it takes your eye off the ball. And so like it, it really, and it, and there are lots of resources that need to get poured into responding to this. And so it's, it's it's really a time consuming, emotionally exhausting um, thing to have to deal with. Then I looked at disinformation, and we're we're well aware of the way in which the Internet Research Agency in Saint Petersburg uh, uh, put all sorts of of disinformation into the campaign. And I, tr- I was interested in the ways in which Russian manipulation um, has shifted over time. And there's a lot that we've done we've done well here. I mean, I think that, uh, the social media companies, uh, for all the flack that they rightfully take. And I've, I've, I like, you know, they've, they've been kicked, kicked all over the place and deservedly so, but I think that they've done a lot to try to clamp down on inauthentic accounts on the bot, the botnets and, um, accounts that are clearly attributable to the internet research agency or other Russian assets. But at the same time, the Russians keep evolving their 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 approach. And one of the things that they've tried to do is they've tried to enlist others to do their business for them. So, for instance, after the the hateful riots in Charlottesville, uh, there were attempts by um, uh, kind of uh, by the left to organize counter rallies. And so, what the Russians have tried to do tried to do was uh, tried to set up. Facebook pages where they kind of seeded ideas, brought people together, and then had authentic Americans do the work for them. So they, on their their anti uh, unite the right protest page, they set it up, and suddenly it became the Russian page on Facebook became a magnet for uh, American activists who were authentically interested in what the Russians were talking about, and fake Russians then began communicating with the Americans who then went about organizing their rally. And so it creates a real complicated issue for, uh, for the, the platform companies. I mean, just because the Russians instigate something, you do have authentic Americans using those pages as a way to express authentic opinions and organize rallies that are attended by authentic people. But we see the Russians kind of pushing and prodding and instigating um, and, you know, one other issue that I was very interested in that I feel like gets no attention is that in every, there are now around the world, you know, close to 100 examples of the Russians spending money on foreign campaigns. So illegally siphoning money into the into political systems around the world. And they they tried to do that. They, they did do that here. Um, and when uh, Rudy Giuliani's associates, uh, Fruman and Parnas, were indicted, uh, I think it was uh, last year when they were indicted, there was evidence that Russians were uh, funneling money into congressional campaigns and into political action committees. And that's what we know. But 
but so much of our political system is just ill-equipped now to, to there's nobody who's investigating um, foreign money coming into the American political system unless there's a specific lead for them to follow. We have nobody really monitoring the system and the Federal Elections Commission, which should be investigating these things, really hasn't done it. In fact, hasn't had a quorum for much of the last year. So Frank, your last section in the piece is called an uncoordinated response. And it it keeps the theme going about that we're not as prepared as we should be. And in that section, you write that Vladimir Putin could have no better friend than Donald Trump when it comes to Putin's attacking our democracy. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, it's been pretty clear uh, since 2016 that every time Putin attacks, Trump kind of either denies their attack or declines to investigate it. Um, I think the extent to which Russia has been punished for what it did in 2016 has been has been quite minimal. Uh, when it comes to uh, sowing distrust of authoritative uh, information and distrust of American institutions. Trump has been instrumental in, in, in denigrating those, that which, which makes it easier for Russian misinformation uh, to spread. Even the question of Russian interference itself is, like, as I said, has become this, this partisan issue. And uh, uh, when the intelligence communities, uh, community wants to uh, relay information <laughs> about an attack, it's now questioned as being um, as being a partial uh, partisan actor in it, not a credible, not a credible uh, 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 reteller of, of of a narrative. And um, I think Putin, when he surveys this scene, it's got to be incredibly pleased with what he, he, he wants. And, and, you know, in the end, the thing that struck me about where we stand now relative to 2016 is that the Russians don't even need to aggressively intervene in this election in order to have a meaningful impact on it. That we're so, we're so fractured, we're so vulnerable that a feather push from Moscow could could you know result in toppling us. I mean, there's there's we're, we're as we see now, we look into the streets. We're we're society that's unwinding, and we have a president who um, seems indifferent to that unwinding, or seems to gleefully try to hasten that unwinding. Um, these are all circumstances where a, a foreign actor who wants to cause us harm can cause enormous harm. Do you, do you have a theory? I mean, this is the great unanswered question in Washington, right? But do you have a theory as to why the president has behaved the way he has toward Russia? You know, I think a lot of it has to do with his ego. And um, I mean, I think the idea that he, that, that he didn't earn everything in 2016 on his own, that he was somehow helped from abroad means that he didn't achieve the glorious victory. Uh, he didn't receive the, the mass adulation that his ego uh, demands that he does. Um, you know, and then there are these other questions, which I think uh, we, you know, let me put it this way. The Mueller report like, never, never proved the sort of collusion that 
that maximalist alleged when it comes to uh, cooperation between the Trump campaign and uh, and, and and the Russians, um, and you know, and, and yet, like buried in that report, um, are are still suggestions that there's something almost kind of pathologically sympathetic that uh, uh, that there's that Trump has uh, a re- not only this real soft spot uh, for for Putin and for Russia, but that there, like, there, there are all sorts of hints that uh, he's got commercial, in- the, you know, that there were commercial interests. Um, I still think when uh, the fact that we didn't know about the construction of the, 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 the plans for the Moscow uh, Trump Tower and that, that the Moscow Trump Tower plans were going on simultaneous to the campaign and that there was a way in which he viewed the campaign as kind of an infomercial uh, with with Russia as its audience is still a very very significant detail, um, and so I don't think we really know um, what this is all about. I think that it's possible that um, some of the less nefarious explanations are are the truest explanations, um, and yet, like we can't conclusively, I think dismiss some of the more nefarious explanations. So Frank, we have just a couple of minutes left here, and I'd love to finish by asking you two questions. What's your best case out- outcome for the 2020 election based on your research? And what's your worst case outcome? I know that's a little bit unfair, but go for it. You know, the, 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 we got to keep a couple things in the foreground. The first is that um, is that Putin is the Russia's been hit really badly by coronavirus, and Putin's response has not been has not been wonderful. Putin is not somebody who thrives in in crises, in crises. and so he's he's weak right now. And so the question is, like, does that weakness cause him to want to? To lash out and to do something that will assert himself in um, in a very prominent sort of way for the sake of his own ego and for the sake of domestic audiences and for the sake of trying to uh, to prove his relevance on on a global stage. Um, so that's that's one question. And then the other thing that I think we just have to foreground is that given. Given um, given the unrest in American cities, given coronavirus, uh, you know we're doing a lot to um, to achieve uh, obje- Putin's objectives well on our own. And so, you take something like uh, like uh, the the unrest in cities. Yes, there's some evidence that uh, that Russia and Russian camps are kind of are happy about it and would like to see it happening. Yet. Like to impute any sort of causation there uh, seems to me to really stretch things much, much too far. That like that that whatever whatever is happening on the streets of American cities now, you know, entirely has to do with <laughs> with 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 conditions in our own country. Uh, so I think the best case scenario is that that the Russians repeat a lot of the tactics that they used in 2016. Um, and you know, we just get lucky again, um, uh, and, and that he decides that it's not worth his while to, to kind of, to manipulate, uh, the access that he has to American voting systems, uh, 
that they maybe hack emails and uh, were inured to the impact of hacks because uh, they've happened so often in the past and maybe in, in, in maybe uh, conditions are just like there's too much else going on for a hack to actually to matter. I think the worst case scenario is that uh, with with a really well designed, really well targeted, really well disguised, almost anonymous sort of attack, uh, he does something that causes us to doubt the outcome of the election, and then we have between November and January, you know, more months of really terrible strife where uh, Americans are debating in a violent or not even debating or violently contesting the legitimacy of the election. Yeah, that would be a bad outcome. Frank, thank you very <laughs> much for <laughs> thank you very much for joining us today. I think everyone should go to the Atlantic website and read your piece. I think it's very important. So thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. That was Frank Four. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis. Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast. And to ask Jeff some questions, because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.